0: Well, it is an honor and privilege to be here this morning with you. Whether you're here with us or uh, on the live stream, I would invite you to please open your Bibles, and we're going to be looking at the Psalms this morning. Psalm ninety-five, verses one to eleven. Psalm ninety-five, verses one to eleven. Now, as you're making your way, as you're making your way to Psalm ninety-five, I want us to keep this question in mind as we read: Why is God worthy of our worship? Now, maybe you've asked yourself that question before. Maybe you've asked that question to yourself during a particularly difficult moment in your life. Why is God worthy of our worship? Or maybe, maybe you've never asked yourself that question before. Well, in either case, we we see our need to be reminded. And so as we look at the Psalms this morning, as we open up the church's oldest hymn book, the psalmist is going to give us sweet, sweet reminders of why God is worthy of our worship. This is a psalm for a holy day, a day in which we come into God's house to celebrate something special. It's also a kingship psalm, declaring and proclaiming to us who our king is. And so let's read about our king. Let's read Psalm 95, verses one to 11. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise, for the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth, the heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture. And the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years, I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. This is God's holy and inerrant word. Now, before we study this psalm, let's take a moment and ask his help as we, as we study it. Let's go into him in prayer. Our gracious and heavenly Father, on this, your day, in this, your house, and among these, your people, I pray that you would bless our time studying your word. Father, whatever worries or, or, or cares may be weighing heavy on us this morning, I pray that they would give way and allow us to clearly Uh, see and understand your word. We pray, please, that you would open our hearts and our minds to its wonderful truth. And we pray all of this in Christ's holy name. Amen. Now, I would invite you to please keep your Bibles open to our passage as we make our way through, uh, through our text. But let's go back to our question. Why is God worthy of our worship? Now, the psalmist is going to answer that by giving us three reasons. We're going to and those three reasons are going to be our three points this morning. First, because God is our maker, or our God is our savior. Second, because he is our maker. And third, because he is our redeemer. Because God is our savior, our maker and redeemer. Let's look at that first point. Now, one of the first things we notice in our text is that the word joy is mentioned in each of the first two verses. So, Even if all of this is is new to you, even if you are wondering why you are here this morning, right away the psalmist is giving you a little hint about what you can expect, what the the difference will be with worshiping this God, this Lord. And that expectation can be summed up in one word, joy. Joy. Joyful worship is something that's unique to the Christian church. You won't find joyful worship in a Buddhist temple. You won't find it in a mosque. Now, I, had, uh, I got to see this firsthand a number of years ago when I went to visit the Blue Mosque in Istanbul, Turkey. Now, it is a breathtakingly beautiful building. As you walk up to it, it is completely clad in pure white marble with these beautiful blue domes. And as you, as you walk in, there's all of this gold on the walls and blue tiles everywhere. It is stunning. But something's missing. Now, now as you walk up to it, you, you can kind of tell that something is off. But it's not until you get in that, you, that it finally hits you. There's not a single joyful noise Just a a heavy, somber silence that weighs heavy over the entire space. Another thing that's heartbreaking is to see all of the people going in. All the people that are going into one of the most beautiful structures that mankind has ever built, but they're going in to worship a false god. One that tells them to bow down and submit, not out of joy, but out of fear. And so here, the psalmist is writing to those who may have experienced this kind of worship, worship based on fear. Because when this psalm was written, the God of Israel was different than any other God around. So this psalm would immediately get your attention if you weren't used to what was going to happen, if you weren't used to places like that. And so for us today, the psalmist is saying that here in God's house and among God's people, you're going to see and experience something different something you've never experienced before, perhaps. You're going to see joy here. And so where does that joy come from? What is it that makes worshiping in this place so different? Well, look at the end of verse 1. Here the psalmist says that it's because of the rock of our salvation. Now, that's a, a military term, and the, the, the psalmist is using it to reinforce that God not only defends us But more importantly, he delivers us. He delivers his people. He saves them. And so as we joyously come before the Lord, as we enter into his presence, we do so being first and foremost reminded of his mercy in saving us. It's a reminder that God is someone we can consistently turn to. He's someone who is going to be immovable. Someone who's going to keep us safe. And so entering into God's presence, we do so not out of fear, but joy. Joy in the fact that we worship such a Savior. A Savior that defends us, delivers us, and it's out of that recognition of being rescued that leads us to respond joyfully and also respond thankfully. Look at verse two. It's this sense of joy and thanksgiving that makes us want to sing out in praise. But notice, it's not just one song but songs. So there's this idea of it being a continuous action, something that we keep doing. And we do this with one song after another, songs that, that, that give praise and thanks to the rock of our salvation. We worship God because he is our savior, but the psalmist keeps going. And that brings us to our second point. Look with me at verse three. Now here the psalmist transitions from speaking about God's mercy as Savior to his majesty as king. Now this verse makes a bold proclamation because when you read that little word for at the beginning of the the verse, it's like it's saying we declare. We declare that the Lord is a great God, a great king above all other gods. In other words, he's saying if you are here, you need to know who this Lord is. Now, earlier we were, we were talking about God's merciful rescue. Now we're talking about his majestic reign. And the psalmist wants to reinforce that majesty to us. He's saying, you may have seen other gods being worshiped, but they are nothing like our God. Not only is our God great, he is the, the, the king of them all. That's the God that we worship here. Nothing is bigger, nothing is mightier, nothing rules over our God. And that's again why we can make such a joyful noise. Our God, the mightiest and greatest of them all, he's the one who has saved us. But look what the psalmist adds in verses four and five. Now what's what's beautiful about these verses is how they speak to what we can and cannot see. Now God made everything you could possibly see and more. And it's all in his hands. From the, from the deepest depths to the highest heights, it, it's all his and that repetition in verses four and five reinforces this. It's his, it's his, it's all his. And it shows us just how far reaching God's kingdom goes. Now, maybe you read that and it's still hard for you to picture. Maybe when you read these verses, and even just the thought of trying to conceive of just how big God is, seems impossible. Well, several years ago, I was very fortunate to have dinner with a man named Charlie Duke, who helped me understand the majesty of statements like this. Now, Charlie was an astronaut with the Apollo program. Uh, If you go back and listen to Neil Armstrong as he's landing on the moon, uh, the guy on the other end of the radio back in Houston, that's Charlie. Now, he was slated to go up in Apollo 13, but he famously got the measles and couldn't go. And so at this dinner, he was telling us all about his life, from from being a a test pilot to the moment that he straps himself into a rocket and launches with Apollo 16. Then after a four-day journey, he makes his way to the moon and gets to walk on the surface. And as as he is telling me all of these things, I am geeking out. Uh, questions are just pouring into my mind and I'm thinking, okay, what is the question that I'm going to ask? We've got to come up with a good one. And I can't explain to you why, but the question that just bubbled to the top was, how was the view? And he kind of chuckled at that question. And he said that from the moon, the earth was like this little blue jewel. And he said, because the, the sun was shining, you couldn't see any of the stars. So here was this beautiful blue jewel just hanging there against the blackest nothing you could ever imagine. But then he paused for a moment. He paused for a moment and he said, you know, that it took some of the best technology that we had in the world and some of the most brilliant minds around to put Charlie on the moon. And he told me that looking back on that moment, now as a Christian, having been strapped to a rocket, landing on the moon, all that he's been able to do in life... Looking back on on, on all of that, none of it compared to seeing the world God created, seeing it just hanging there. None of it compared to what God could do. None of it could compare to his majesty. He said, even though we are capable of doing incredible things, we are always going to have our limits, but never God, never God. And that's exactly what the psalmist wants us to see here. And it's in verse 6, it's the the realization of this that should move us all to worship Him. Again, this is why we're all here. But even the manner in which we worship God looks different. Look at the end of verse 6 and the beginning of verse 7. For the second time in this passage, the, the psalmist is personalizing our relationship with God. But here he takes it a step further. Now, in verses four and five, we saw that God is bigger than we could possibly imagine, and yet, and yet he chooses to share his creation with us. Now, God could have just created this world and everything in it, left it at that, but he chose to make us as well. He is our maker. He He chose to make us part of his creation. Not only that, God has also made himself known to us so that we can worship and enjoy his creation. Now, think about all that we've been told about God so far in this passage. All of these incredible descriptions of who God is juxtaposed against verse 7. So here is the God of all gods, the king of all kings. And in verse 7, we're told that he is our God. Now, this doesn't mean that God somehow belongs to us, like our our cars or, or cell phones belong to us. No, our God, the God of all, he is God to us. He's our savior, the rock of our salvation. He's the source of our joy in worship. But he's also our maker, the one who has graciously decided to share this creation with us. And it's only because of that fact that our worship is at all possible. Again, the psalmist is reminding us not only of the God that we worship, but why we should worship him. Which now brings us to our third point. So why is God worthy of our worship? Because he's also our redeemer. Now, when we look at the last part of verse seven, we see yet another reminder of something that we tend to forget. Today, if you hear his voice, is what it says. In other words, today, if you hear the word of God, oftentimes we tend to forget that that this is God's word. This is God's voice. This is how he speaks to us. Now, whether it's a psalmist, a prophet, or any other biblical author, it's all God's word. It's all God's voice. And here at the end of verse seven, we get this quick little reminder that in this book it is always God speaking. But pause for one moment. Pause for a moment and think about everything this Psalm tells us about God, about his mercy, his majesty, his supremacy, and now God, the same God who has created this world, the universe, everything in it, this God now speaks directly to us. And we get to see what God says in verse eight. He says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness. He's exhorting us to listen to his voice, to listen to the word of God, but he's also taking us back into Israel's history, back to uh, something that happened in Exodus 17 when the Israelites, the people of God, actually put God on trial. Here's what happens. After being led out of slavery in Egypt by Moses, Israel finds themselves in the middle of this desert with no water. So they begin to panic. And that panic leads to doubt. The the doubt then leads to this anger. They get angry at God, even after He's done everything to protect them, to provide for them, their hearts are angry angry and unwilling to trust God to continue to provide for them, to save them. And so what do they do? Verse 9 tells us that Israel put God to the test. In other words, they put God on trial. And they accuse God of not providing for them even though they had seen his work. Basically what they are doing is accusing God of being a con man taking them out of one place where they had water into a desert where there is none for conning basically a million people to go out into the desert only to die of thirst. And at this trial, God shows up. He goes before all of the leaders of Israel and stands on this rock as the accused party. And in in front of the elders of Israel, Moses brings out the staff, the same staff that parted the Red Sea that made the plagues come, that turned the Nile to blood. Moses takes the staff that represents God's judgment and strikes the rock. The rock where God stands and judgment is executed. But judgment doesn't come down on God's people. It's brought down on God himself. Now, why would God do that? Well, it's not because God was, was guilty. And it's certainly not because the Israelites' accusations were true. It's because we are the guilty ones. You see, just like Israel in verse 10, we are a people whose hearts go astray. We are the guilty ones, and yet God gives himself for our sins. So why does the psalmist include this in a message that speaks to our worship of him? Because in moments of joy, we tend to forget. We forget the seriousness of our sin and our need for a savior. We also forget God's goodness. So we need to be reminded that God has brought judgment down on himself to to save, to redeem and rescue his people. And God's way of rescuing his people is unlike anything this world has ever seen. He doesn't rescue us from a distance. God's not redeeming and saving us from this far-off place like the moon. No, just like at Massa and Meribah, Scripture tells us that God redeems us. God rescues us by intimately entering into our situation. Christ, God the Son, humbly entered into this world. He left his place of heavenly comfort to experience all the things that we experience. And just like Israel put God on trial, Christ would go on trial. He too would suffer. He would suffer the the wrath of God's judgment on the cross, not because he was guilty, but because we are. This is how much God, the, the one who holds the world in his hands, this is how he shows his love to a sinful world, by sending us his son by sending his son to be guilty for us and for our sins. This is who our God is. And this shows us how far he is willing to go to to rescue and redeem us. This is why God is worthy of our worship. And this is what the psalmist is reminding us of. One of the keys to to seeing the beauty of this psalm is to realize that it needs to be sung over and over again. Its beauty comes in its repetition because even in our joy, we have a tendency to forget. And so we need these gracious reminders again and again, over and over. We need to be reminded that God is our Savior and Maker, but also the reminder that God is our Redeemer. So as we come into this place each week, even as the the worries of the world weigh heavy on our hearts, may we be reminded that in this place, this is where true joy is found. may May the words of this psalm be a sweet reminder to us of who our God is. Again and again, over and over, may we say with joyous refrain that God is worthy of our worship. He's worthy because He's our Savior. He's worthy because He is our Maker. And He is worthy because He is our Redeemer. That's the Psalmist reminder to us this morning. Let's pray.